Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, when I assigned Hillary, did I lose you? Oh, sorry. It just kicked me back and let's see. Hold on. There we go. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, when I signed you up as panelist, did, did you got a, a separate link for that or an invitation? Okay. Um, I got an invitation. I only got one invitation. That was the link I used okay. to log in. Interesting. All right. There is Mr. O'Connell. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, I was introducing Clint to Hillary and Clint, I'll introduce you to Ryan O'Connell. Hey, Ryan. Hi, Clint. Hi, Hillary. He's the guy who's put together the web, the Facebook group, how to ADU. Uh, when I joined, it had about 3000 members. I think now it has like 8,000 members. Uh, that's just one of the social media <laughs> platforms that he is advocating on as a yeah true advocate. <laughs> I'm embarrassingly absent from the Facebook group. I think David does a better job in there than I do, but it's a it's a cool place because because homeowners end up helping each other, I think, and and that's uh, part of the unlock, hopefully. Yeah. Oh, I need to get Gabby in here and I don't know how she it's the link you use I think I think I yeah because I signed her up as co-host perfect yeah but then I also sent her the link and I think she's on that link ah uh, okay that I sent I used the one yes the ascent or zoom sent I forget but it logged me in as a panelist worked like a charm okay then I'm probably just going to add her as a panelist to do is there a, a any kind of template or script for the the, the afternoon or yes. i just want to make sure i'm not behind no um no no one's behind we'll, okay cool we'll do um, welcome here's just you know the first ask a pro webinar we'll talk about some of the best practice uh, practices for the people right now we have like 28 that have registered uh, we'll say, you know, raise your hand, put something in the chat. We'll try to answer it. I think that with the Q&A, you know, there is, once we have a question, I mean, I'm not sure if you guys can see what I just popped up, but I can say answered. And so that we can kind of go through those. And I'm not then, saying anything. Yeah, I, I'm probably on my side, so I'll have to, because I think if you click on the Q&A button, it should say what's up there. Do you say like- Oh yeah, open, answered, and dismissed. There's no open questions. Correct, yeah. so no one submitted a question yet. And then we'll kind of, the idea is, because I know, Clint, you have a real limited schedule, so we'll kind of open up, do some introductions. And then what I'm going to do is kind of say one of the things, because from the um, How To ADU Facebook page, there's so many people that are talking about different prices from, mm -hmm. you know, whether they're doing a contractor, they're doing a DIY, they're doing owner builder, and all of these prices are all over the place. And so, you you know, I know that they're getting a lot of workers coming onto their property that may not be properly insured. And so what do they look for? And how do they kind of make sure that they are protecting themselves and their home and their family from somebody kind of going, oops, I broke my foot and I'm going to sue you for 100,000. So things like that. And then we'll go into Hillary introductions and, and just kind of talking about the loan products, real simple stuff that you do every day. And then, um, I'll kind of talk a little bit about my experience and what I've done and then Ryan and then I really want to try to get people to um, get in. Hold on one second. I'm here for emotional support, you know. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see. I mostly make funny faces while other people say smart stuff. That's all my, <laughs> my niche. Hey, we all need that. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Keep telling myself that. Let me figure out, I got to try to figure out how to get Gabby in. Participants. And that's odd. I just hit the connect button and it connected right away. Because she was not as a panelist. She was as a host. Maybe you can't have two hosts. Who knows? It depends on what level subscription you're paying for, for Zoom. On the webinar function, they allow co-hosts at certain levels. All of you guys are set up as co-hosts right now. Okay, cool. You'll have huh. videos. So I'm just going to try to get Gabby. So just give me one second. 
Gabby, I'm sorry. I don't know how to bring you in. So, because I can't, I know that there was a function. There is a function that I could bring somebody up as a panelist, but I'm not seeing where that is. So let's see. Raise hand more. And if any of you guys have any insight, I don't know. I'm just going to send Gabby the exact URL I used in case that like magically works. If it's something she already tried, Gabby, I've put a URL just to you in the chat. If that, if, if you log back in with that, maybe it magically works. Not sure. And then David, what email address did you use for Gabby when you signed her up? Um, the one I always use for her. Okay. <laughs> a, a common occurrence for me that causes my zoom doomsday zooms day is when I log in with like my how to account, but I've been invited right. by the inspired account or whatever. Right. And like zoom isn't good at telling you. So okay. that might be the other one, Gabby. And if that doesn't work, I don't know. Those are my two turn it off, turn it back on again, kind of comments. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Well, it is, let's see. We have about 10 people that are already with us. And so um, we'll give it a couple more minutes because the um, webinar is going. So I think we're gonna be good. Um, it's kind of nice having everybody here. Um, so thank you for you know just kind of taking time out of your busy schedules. I know everybody has a lot of work on their plate. Um, so kind of seeing what we can't uh, put together this afternoon is gonna be kind of fun. I know that um, for those of you who are participating, welcome a little bit early. We're going to give it just a couple more minutes for some people to log on. We had about 28 participants register, and right now we have 10. So if, if you haven't uh, gone to uh, Ryan O'Connell's, gosh, you have a massive YouTube channel with dozens and dozens of really insightful content that cover a plethora of information. Uh, I, and do you just have one channel for how to ADU, or do you have other things that you are doing? On, on YouTube, most of it sits in the one channel. I've tried a couple tests. So if you ever see something else, it's because I'm messing around. I'm trying a new feature or something. But but most of it's on that How To ADU channel. Even the, the SB9, the housing advocacy stuff, it all lives over there. And I really appreciate all of you helping out and watching and sharing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and the one thing I think that's really good and resonated, uh, at least with me personally, what with what Ryan is doing, he takes a very kind of objective, um, studied approach to a lot of these topics. And he's not promoting anything really except for affordable housing and advocating for more housing. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I, I got I got out of the very luxurious gig at the wine industry because I wanted to, I wanted to fix housing in California. I want people to be able to afford to, to live where they work or worked once they're done working. And, uh, and it's really hard if we don't build some housing. I think ADEs are a great way to do that. SB9 is a great way to do that. Helping homeowners develop their own property feels like a win-win on both. No matter what politics you believe in, people tend to believe like, I should be able to build something on my land and maybe use it for, for something for my family or, or create some rental security. You know? So I, I love doing that stuff. It's, it's really impactful. And every time I see somebody move over to the next step, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I back in the day, years a long time ago, the conditional use permit, which is about the only way you could get, you know, a casita or a granny flat built, you know, that was it. And a, and a conditional use permit was like as long as that person's there, you're permitted to use it as that. And I'm like, wait, you could go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a structure, and then after your family member moved to a transitioned out of it, you you were no longer allowed to use it. It made no sense to me. So it was kind of curious. Um, we're just about, let's see, we have 12 participants. It's, uh, you know, four minutes after two o'clock. We'll kind of get this thing going. So welcome to those of you who are signed on. This is the first webinar, Ask a Pro. So something I kind of had an idea I wanted to bring on to, you know, just a format where we can ask questions and some people that I personally kind of respect and have a lot of admiration for. Uh, one of the first ones is going to be Clint Bailey. He is an insurance, a commercial insurance provider, and he has been in the business for ages, and I've been working with him, so I think he has a lot of insight. He's also very pragmatic about things, so if you have questions, well, I'll be kind of advocating and talking about 
my perspective on the critical nature of insurance. Next is going to be Hillary. She's with a lending institution that um, our partners in Northern California have been working with her for some time. And we find that anybody that we refer to her, she's also a great source of information. So thank you, Hillary, for being here. And then I think probably one of the stars of the show is Mr. Ryan O'Connell. He is the founder of How to ADU, the Facebook page that has grown when I joined it at 3,000 all the way up to over almost 8,000 and is a strong advocate for just affordable housing and housing in general. So welcome, everybody. The first we're going to talk about a little bit of best practices. You know, if you if you're here and you have a question, that's what we're here for. We want to kind of ask those. So put them in the Q&A. Um, you can kind of put them in the chat. But we'd like to if you can put them in the question and answer that's on the bottom, then we can kind of make sure that we've answered them. Another cool feature is once you put your question in the Q&A, other people can go upvote the questions that they also have so we can like prioritize. And even if you don't know what questions you have, you can pop into the Q&A and just like upvote other people's questions. And that's a way to participate. Thank you, Ryan. I think that's great. Um, so Clint, I want to yes. start start with with you, because one of the things I get a lot of or I see a lot of is I is that I don't really think people that are they're that aware of how important having the right kind of insurances. When you have, whether you're doing a general, ever having a general contractor, you're going from an architect to then hiring a general contractor. And then they start getting all the subs and they're on your property. And they just, I think most homeowners think that, or don't think that there's an insurance issue or an insurance component. And one of the things I've been posting is about the additionally insured certificate of liability or being named or having yourself named as a certificate holder which as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, that if somebody were to do some damage to your property, let's say the contractor broke something, that then the you, because you're a certificate holder, the homeowner could then go directly to the insurance company. You wouldn't have to go through the contractor themselves. Well, you bring up a good point and there's a few different lines of insurance if we're talking about setting up a home. And that's kind of what we're discussing here is we uh, have a prospective home developer that's going to go out and buy, say, a tiny home and they're going to put this tiny home on a piece of land. What kind of insurance do they need? What kind of protection do they need? Well, the key thing um, is two lines of coverage. First coverage is builder's risk. Um, when construction processes are taking place, when you have an actual construction site taking place, normal property insurance does not cover any kind of damage that might happen to the home at that point. So once the home gets delivered to the site, typically, you know, in that delivery process, you and you obviously, if you're uh, buying one of these, you need to make sure that whoever is doing the transport manufacture of your home is covering that home while it's sitting on a truck or being towed behind a truck. Because again, normal insurance is not gonna work in those conditions. You need to vet that with whoever you're doing with the uh, um, transporter or the developer that we will have coverage while that home's in transit. But once it gets to the job site, that's typically where it becomes your responsibility. So let's say you're developing on a park, uh, the home gets delivered, the home gets set down. At that point now, the home needs to be set up. You're gonna need what's called a builder's risk policy and that will provide you coverage while the construction, the whole setup process is taking place. You could buy these in three month installments, six month installments, depending upon how long it's gonna take for the home to be built. That covers the property section of it. That covers it if it burns down, if it gets damaged, uh, basically through that whole construction process, you're protecting your investment in that home. But that doesn't provide you liability. And you brought up the, uh, the, you know, the liability piece of this. What is your protection in the event that somebody gets injured and this home is titled in your name and they decide to sue you as a result for getting injured at this site? That is where you need liability insurance. Now, typically, if you hire a licensed contractor to do this work for you, somebody that it carries a license in the state of California, you also wanna verify that they have general liability insurance. 
And that contractor, this is the typical way, will provide the liability to you while they're on the job site. So while there's a setup process going on, the general contractor that is in charge of doing this job should be providing you with the liability to do the job. And they will name you as, meaning when I say the home buyer, you as the home buyer, as additional insured on their insurance policy. So the coverage will extend to any injuries that might happen to a third party that happens to be on the site. Very important that this is taking place. Now, what if you don't hire a GC to do this job and you decide, I think you mentioned a little earlier that maybe you do it as an owner builder or something along those lines. Yeah, we, Then it's we, gonna we be your responsibility to yeah. go out and secure general liability insurance for this job. For, for each one of the, the trades. So if you have somebody who's doing some excavating, who's you know, you know digging out the footings, who's putting in the metals, pouring the concrete. So you have a concrete contractor. You need the GL from him, them as well. You're gonna get a GL for the premise for yourself. Then every sub that comes onto the job. So if you're acting as the GC in this circumstance, every sub that comes on the job, you need to secure a certificate of insurance from those subcontractors. Uh, the GC normally does this. That's what they're doing. They're forcing that every sub that comes on the property to name them as additional insured. And they're doing that on behalf of you. But if you don't take on a GC, then you're going to need to make sure that you are doing the diligence to make sure that every subcontractor that comes onto the site names, not only carries general liability insurance, but they also name you, the home builder, as additional insured. Now that's for liability. There's also a workers' comp that we deal with right. too. And in the state of California, this is incredibly important too. It is. Um, because uh, the way our laws are written in California, if you are hiring somebody to come onto your site that is not licensed to do this work in the state of California, you are becoming, in, in essence, an employer to that person. You're becoming their employer. And if that person gets injured while working on developing or building or setting this home, um, you're going to be the one that's responsible for paying their medical bills uh, for, you know, however long. If it's disability, it could be for, you know, 20, 30 years that you're paying on this. And it's very risky to go out and hire people that are not licensed to do this type of work. Let me ask a question, because one of the things that I've run into sometimes is where somebody says that they have a contractor's license and they have insurance, but and they might say that, the, and you might look at it on the contractor's website, website. Of the state of California, mm -hmm. and it says they only have one employee. And then you see six on the job site. Yep. Great question. <laughs> what you're talking about is the state of California allows sole proprietors. Uh, basically, if I am a contractor and I state that I'm the only one that works for my company, I can get workers' compensation insurance waived. Those contractors do that to cut their costs, obviously. Yes. And they will go out and yes, all of a sudden they show up to the job site and there are four people that are working there. In that event, um, yes, you can be cited as the employer in that circumstance. So the homeowner would be the employer. The homeowner ultimately can be the one that is uh, found. Uh, and this is where I think a lot of people get um, thrown off because they'll say that somebody has insurance. Oh, I have it. Here it is. But no one really drills down and said, well, you have one, you're the only, you're the sole proprietor. And I actually got a bid from somebody that had that. And then, cause I've been doing property development for 20 years. I then had another contractor who was contractor who was working on my neighbor's house. And he said, Oh, here's everything. And then I asked for, you know, the certificate of liability. Well, it was his buddy's license he was using, contractor's license, and he they refused to name me as additionally insured. And because it was like, whoa, no, no, we're not going to do that. And I was like, so I think that it's really important that everybody kind of gives us a lot more attention, asks the questions that they need to, because this is complex stuff. If you're subcontracting, if you're hiring subcontractors to do various trades, and they have a bunch of people on, find out, get the insurance certificates that uh, Clinton was mentioning. And you need to ask the questions like, how, where's your workers' comp insurance? And if they don't have workers' comp insurance and you have a bunch of people showing up, that's a big red flag. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the, the certificates that come out, it's called an Accord 25 is the technical term for it, an Accord 25. And on that form, they will have a section for general liability insurance um, and a section for workers' compensation insurance. Both of them could be, should be listed on that form. If they're not listed on their form and they'll have policy numbers, expiration dates, you, you do need to vet all this information and verify. And then uh, their license number, go on it. Like you were saying, it's the uh, California State uh, Contracting Licensing Board. It's available online and you can go and run their license number and verify it's the same person that's talking to you that is also attached to that license. If it's not the same person, you know something's kind of fishy and something might be uh, a little uh, amiss. And, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's homework that needs to be done because in the event of a claim, it can really be messy. And, and you bring that up because, you know, my wife is a workers' comp defense attorney. She's the one who would be defending the employer. And what it is anything, somebody could claim any injury. In the state of California, you really don't have to show that you've had this massive injury before somebody is going to say, I think I'm going to get a payday from you by saying that I'm injured. And it, I don't think it doesn't, it doesn't happen that often, but I just, I'm, I live around it all the time. I, I really like raising the flag up to go watch out, be careful, make sure that you have all the proper insurance because what is at risk is the fact that you're going to be the employer looked at as the employer and you're going to be responsible for all of their medical expenses. So, and I, it, that, correct? Oh, yeah. absolutely. And it, what you were just bringing up there, which is is key, and we're kind of going back to another uh, position that we talked about. Um, if this is a sole proprietor contractor that's just bringing random people onto the job, a lot of times some of those random people are really not people that are working for them at all times. And so they really don't know what the motivation of this person is. And some of these people do realize and they come to this realization that it's easy to get a free dime uh, based on our California workers comp laws that uh, allow them to, you know, it's a no fault insurance. It's not like they have to establish that there was really, you know, uh, it's just no fault. If you're claiming that you're injured on that site, then, you know, now, of course, they've done a better job of getting some medical providers that they have to go see and, you know, some vetting on that right. side. But it's, you know, it's still something you just don't want to be involved in, if at all possible. Make sure you're using contractors that are licensed for this type of work and carry the right insurance. Yeah, thank you, Clint. So, some, sometimes contractors don't like answering these questions and it can be a really early sign that you, if you're the type of person who wants to do your homework and they're the kind of person who gets a little prickly when you start asking responsible questions, like respectful questions, it's probably not a good match, right? And like, that's good, that's good to know early on, go find somebody who doesn't mind your questions because these are reasonable questions when, when posed the right way. And then the other thing is like, if you're looking for a classy way to ask about this stuff, I think you get, it's very common to just be like, hey, how, um, how many people do you employ versus what jobs you sub out? Uh, how many jobs are you doing right now? And am I gonna get your permanent employees or sub crews? And like, when you ask questions like that, those are very like, they should, they should be all about those questions. As soon as you start talking about insurance and stuff, you know, some people get spidey, uh, the spider sense tingling, but you're kind of getting the same answer in both cases. So they're good, they're good questions for like keeping your back pocket. Thank you, Ryan. I think that's, that's really, really good. Clint, I know that uh, you may need to go, but if you want to hang on for any- Sure, sure, I'm fine. Please do. Um, and I want to kind of you know, hand it off to, to Hillary, because one of the things that we, we got in a poll that I put on, the thing is like, how do you, you know, pay for an accessory dwelling unit? You know, what are the ways? Do I have to go to my savings account? Do I have to go to my retirement account? Uh, can I tap into the equity into my property or do I have a construction loan option? Yes, 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 and, and yes, <laughs> and yes, and then insurance on top of that. Um, so there's a few different ways to finance an ADU. The most common way right now is a construction loan. And the reason for that, because the question I always get is, is, is my property going to appraise? And the short answer is probably not for what you're paying to actually build the ADU, not because it's not worth it because the lending world doesn't operate on cost to build, 
the lending world operates on construction value in terms of resale. So they're looking at comparable sales and is a house that's like yours with an ADU like yours going to sell and what is it going to sell for? And that's where the lending world hasn't quite caught up to the ADU landscape. And for the past almost over a decade, over a decade now, I have been fighting I've been fighting the lending world on this, um, and and we're finally getting we're finally getting somewhere. But it's it's going to take another ten years before ADU appraisals catch up to what the value actually is for the homeowner and the ability to utilize a property in multiple ways. So the short answer is yes, you can finance all those ways, but let's break it down. And then I did just see a question: um, How do ADUs affect property taxes? Depending on the county you're in, so I'm going to go down to the county level. The county tax assessor is going to assess that as livable, taxable living space, which means your property taxes will be impacted by the value of your ADU that they assess it at. Not what the lender assesses it at, not what the builder values it at, but what the county gives you cost per square foot for that dwelling. And then they will adjust your property taxes accordingly. Now, depending again on what county you're in, they will reassess after completion of the build. So hypothetically, you start in a, in March of 2022, your ADU is done four months later. So now we're in, let's say July, August. I'm just gonna push that time frame out to July, August. The county tax assessor will reassess for the following tax year. So it's not an instantaneous hit. It actually can take anywhere from six to 18 months to get your property reassessed. Does that make sense? If you have any other questions, throw them in the, the Q&A log. Um, and again, depending on the county that you're in, because if I'm looking at um, Marin County versus LA County, right, I'm looking at two completely different tax structures. So when we're looking at two different tax structures, the value per square foot is going to be different. And I will say that the highest taxed county right now that I'm aware of in LA is, or in California is LA County and the surrounding areas. Um, the worst ADU valuation I saw for taxes was actually in Temecula. Um, and that one brought their property taxes up $12,000 a year. It was pretty insane. We're fighting it. So, um, sorry, I had popcorn right before this. <laughs> and uh, that's just one of, you never know quite what you're going to get. But with taxes, I will say this. If you're unsure of what the value is going to be, go to the county, get a meeting, and ask them, hey, I'm going to build, here are my plans. I'm gonna build a 600 square foot, single level detached ADU. What is the range my taxes will increase? And they will give you a range and it will need to fall within that range because it's truly based on taxes for that county. So that's a good way to um, assess it there. Does the county use average price per square foot to assess value? No, it's a little different by county. So you're going to have the average price per square foot has nothing to do with the valuation of your ADU. It's gonna be the county laws, what the taxation is in that state, what bonds and levies have been passed in your community. So all of that gets factored into the price per square foot. Uh, what ADU loan products typically have the lowest interest rates, assuming you have a lot of equity in your existing home. Cool, so two things, home equity line of credit, easiest, fastest thing to qualify for. Home equity line of credit is a variable rate second mortgage. It's not fixed. The rates are gonna be a little higher than a first, but you can tap into up to 90% of the existing value of your home, what it is right now. That's the cheapest option because there's no closing costs and you only pay interest on what you draw. Option number two is a cash out refi. That can be a 10 year, 15 year, 20 year or 30 year fixed mortgage. You can also do an arm if you really want to. Um, you're going to lock in that payment. It is gonna be a mortgage on your home which means you are gonna get your 1098 tax write off. Yay, we gotta get it where we can take it. Um, and that is going to have closing costs associated with it. They're minimal in comparison to say a construction loan. Uh, and it will allow you to tap into 75 to 80% of the existing value. So if you're a homeowner who has a lot of value, that would be the loan program I would push you to before I would suggest a construction loan. I think it's most important that if you have the resources already, Utilize those, don't pay more than you need to. If you don't have equity, that's where the homestyle renovation loan, I saw that on the Q&A, homestyle renovation loans. Those are gonna be the most expensive type of loan, that or a traditional construction loan, but we get to use future value of your property, which means 
I would go to David and say, hey, give me the plans for what you're going to build for these people. Tell me a lot about what the finishes are on this property. He gives me a description of materials and a full scope of work. And I say, great, this property is going to appraise at X with my appraiser. And we are going to use the value of the finished product to fund your loan, which gives you more equity out of the gates. It's not dollar for dollar. That's where people get a little stuck. It's not dollar for dollar. But I would say about 80% of the people that come to me for construction loans I will maybe fund about 50 to 60% of all of the people that come to me for construction loans with a mix of cash down and equity in the house, so on and so forth. Hillary, um, somebody in the, the chat feature said if you could repeat the name of the second type of loan after the HELOC. Uh, cash out refinance. Okay. This is just tapping into equity in your existing home. And we will say this. Quick, Go ahead, David. Which is the quickest? Because in my understanding- HELOC. Like the HELOC, you can get in very short order. Two weeks, a week and a half. Um, cash out refi, 30 days. And then a construction loan is completely dependent on the build package. So we have to have a project package from our builder, from David, and then the 30-day loan process starts because we're appraising to what you're building. So we need to know what you're building. Um, HELOCs are the fastest. I will say this. I did just uh, help a client who had a couple properties. Not everybody has that, I realize, but I just want to give you guys an example of how creative we can be. Uh, she had an investment property that she owned and she had a primary home. And the investment property, she owed about 150,000 on it. It was worth about 400. And then her primary home, she owed about 250 or so on it and it was worth 600. And instead of trying to do a construction loan and get enough equity to do a $400,000 ADU, which is exactly what she wanted to do, we did a cash out refi on both of her properties, combined the equity, got her payments really low on both of the properties. She still cash flowed her rental. And then we took all of that money and built her an ADU on her primary residence, which is now paying back the roughly $500,000 mortgage she has on her primary home from the long-term rents she's getting from that ADU. So there's, you know, it depends on the situation. And I tell everybody, don't just listen to blanket statements. If you want to know what your situation is, pick up the phone and call somebody like me. Take five minutes. Let us ask you some very personal questions. I'm going to ask you what your credit score is. I'm going to get down and dirty into your mortgage details. Um, but then I can put together a very quick summary of here are the types of loans. Let's explore them. Or, hey, we need to pause. I need you to work on your credit. Or we need to save a little bit more and we're close. We're going to actually get a game plan together. Uh, when you want to build an ADU, it's not always going to be fast, but if you're willing to put in the time, we can get you there. Thank you. I appreciate that, Hillary. Yeah. Um, as, as I think everybody can kind of appreciate, there are there's a lot of detail to the various products that are out there. And as Hillary mentioned, call and contact a lender that you have a relationship with or you know or you've seen uh, somebody recommend someplace and just ask the question, have that kind of doctor's visit as I kind of like to look at it when you sit with a lender because they are gonna ask you the personal questions. So just be prepared for that. I have a question about that actually. So uh, there's a couple of people in the Facebook group who say that they're lenders and they're hard money people. Yep. Is there is there a good way to know that somebody's like a licensed broker who's shopping like really official financial products versus like a guy in a van who's gonna give me money for the ADU? And then like <laughs> wake up in a bathtub and I'm missing organs. Like what's yeah, the- Okay, <laughs> that was graphic. Um... <laughs> <laughs> they come with bathrooms, Hillary. I mean, uh... <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just, I really didn't need to go there. Like I just had a, a, a serial killer moment. Guido. Um, yeah, okay. So yes, there is this beautiful thing called an NMLS number, National Mortgage Licensing System number. And if you are a licensed mortgage lender, you have to have an NMLS number. And y'all can go to nmls.com or, or can't remember which one it is. I should know this. I've been doing this for 12 <laughs> years. One of the two. And you can type in my number and I'll even put it in the chat. You guys can text us out. Um, you can, oh, I didn't put it in the chat. Can someone put that in the open answer dismissed thing for me? Um, you can type that in and it's actually going to bring up my record as a mortgage lender. It's going to tell you that I'm not a felon. I get my fingerprints done every year. I'm a good lender, what companies I've worked for. It actually gives you a list of all of the um, institutions I've worked for in the last 12 years. So you'll be able to see that I worked for US Bank six years ago and a small brokerage firm and that I've been with Umqua Bank since 2015. 
if someone is not willing to give you an NMLS number or they don't have one, chances are they're probably not the right person to talk to. Additionally, banks, so bankers who do home equity lines, they also have to have an NMLS number. So if you're talking to a banker, they also have to have one. Um, hard money lenders don't. They're on capital financing on private lines. It's a whole set of different rules. So if you're looking for a true residential lowest interest rate possible loan, start with NMLS. And, and it's it's serious stuff. It's a, it, These are big loan products. So like, you know, I'm, I'm being glib, but I, I see conversations in the group and I just want everybody to be with responsible regulated lenders so use that nmls nmls i know it's hard isn't it the mouthful also if you guys um, at any given time want to know if a lending institution is solid lending institutions have an nmls so they are also assigned one umqua bank where i work has its own and i am licensed under them so if you're looking at i'm going to use a totally non-existent lender abc123 lender and you're like dude this guy's sketchy if you go look at their NMLS and they're being sanctioned by the SEC for fraud, you probably shouldn't be talking to them. Um, so it's a really simple, easy system. It's as simple as going to Google and typing it in and asking what's the NMLS of Umqua Bank, searching it and off you go. It'll take you one minute tops. Thank you. And I think the other thing, you know, Ryan, is that people really haven't touched on it, but they're looking for hard money because it's quick and easy. The interest mm. rates are amazingly high in most cases. I mean, we're talking, you know, close to 10%, um, if not higher. And, you know, if they're going to do a deed restriction on your property and something goes sideways, that's like you said, the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, you know, I, I get that there's a, an important role for that to play too, because like, if you do a set, like the construction loan setup that Hillary's talking about, right? It's loan number one has a, an inferior rate. And at the end of the construction, you do a takeout loan. And like, and you're, you're back to a normal rate. So I get why people are tempted to go hard money and then do it as a second step. Uh, but just remember that professional real estate developers, capital is everything. That's the big piece. That's where every project goes upside down. <laughs> and so whether you're successful or unsuccessful, is really, really important when it's your house, your yard, your money, your, your credit. You're not, you don't, you're not protected. Most of you aren't protected by having like a corporation that's get taking out the loan. So like, be really serious about it. Don't do a two-step dance with a stranger. Like make sure that the first step is with somebody who is regulated by the government. I want to piggyback on that, Ryan, because there's something that a lot of people don't realize. And I haven't mentioned it in the Facebook group because I don't want to scare people, <laughs> but I get, I get a call at least once a day. I had a call at nine o'clock this morning. I'm halfway through my renovation and my ADU and I ran out of money. Can you help me? Here's the thing. And I see Clint's like, uh-uh, nope, she can't help you. <laughs> I can't. Lenders cannot help you once you break ground. If you break ground on an ADU build and you start construction, you've opened up every lean window under the sun. In a title company and a lender, they won't touch you because now you've got a liability issue with people on site and we can't come in and put a loan on there. Because if someone breaks their foot, like Clint was saying, and puts a lien on your property saying, hey, you owe me money, the bank loan gets put in second position. And from a risk perspective, we're not going to do it. We're like, eh, sorry, you're SOL. Now, it doesn't, that's not pleasant, but it's, I mean, are, would you lend me money if you knew somebody broke their foot and I owed them a hundred grand? Probably not, because you know you're never going to get paid back. So what I tell people, if you don't have enough money to build your ADU in cash, Find the funding first. Don't break ground because it will be a much more painful process for you. I am seeing people take out forty and fifty thousand dollar personal lines of credit and personal loans at twelve percent to try to get this crap built. And I say crap because at that point you're rushing it, you're paying for crap items, you get a very bad finished product, and then what happens is it doesn't appraise, so you can't pay off that forty thousand dollar line of credit at twelve percent because your property doesn't appraise. So the, the horror stories are very real, but it's the people that aren't doing the work up front like Ryan's talking about that are the ones that get caught. And they're not they're not working with builders like David and Yimby and, and really looking through the due diligence period. I'm the last piece. I need to be the last piece to make sure everything falls in line 
so that when you do build, that process is seamless. And when I say I get a call a day, guys, I'm not exaggerating. I've written down all of the, over the last two years, I've actually taken to making my assistant write out who's called me. We now have a list of over 2,000 customers who've called us with incomplete builds and about half of them have still not been able to refinance because we check in about every three months. And it's, uh, it's very real. So when we're talking about protect yourselves from a liability perspective, uh, working with the right builders, having a builder in your back pocket is, in my opinion, after doing this for 12 years, is one of the secret keys to building an ADU at the moment because supply chains are insane, costs are absolutely astronomical, and nobody knows how to deal with the counties because they keep changing rules on us <laughs> like every week. Um, and so it's just uh, protect yourself is what it comes down to. And make the right choices before you jump into the long game. And if, if, if I can piggyback on that real quick, uh, because you did bring up a good point. Same thing goes with insurance. Do not, you know, a lot of times a contractor will come out and say, yeah, we can have this project done for you in three months. You know, we'll have it or six months. Buy longer terms, because the same goes for insurance. If your policy expires and the job is not done, the way these builders risk policies work is they end when the keys are handed to you and the keys are ready for occupancy. That's called a certificate of occupancy. Once we have that, then the insurance needs to change from a builder's risk policy into a homeowner's or you know dwelling fire policy, however you uh, plan to use the place. But if your builder's risk runs out before certificate of occupancy, carriers do not want to get on another term after the construction project's already begun. They're going to say no. So you need to make sure that you get the same insurance company to go from project start to project end. And you cannot have it run out or expire before that term. So just another heads up on that. So it's something to be really kind of important of to say, okay, if you've gotten they've started construction and their their insurance policy expires in in two months you need to make sure that not the contractors no i'm talking about the builder's risk this is this is as a as a buyer you need to protect your assets so when that when the assets being you know put on the site and the construction process begins the carriers that write these projects do not want to uh, pick them up once they're midterm. Uh, they want to take them from start to finish because the bulk of the risk is at the finish. It's not at the start, it's at the, at the end. And so if you're writing with a builder's risk company, they don't want to pick up just the end. They want to pick up the entire job. So you just make sure that you buy enough insurance. So the contractor tells you that it's going to take them six months, buy nine or buy 12. You'll always get a refund if you get the certificate occupancy beforehand, as opposed to trying to buy cheaper terms by getting a you know, shorter term or time frame. You're just going to not find another carrier to get on board. And Clint, are there companies or entities that specialize in builders' risk? I know you specialize in commercial, but yes, and that's I was I was answering some of those questions earlier on uh, the chat feature. This is not you don't just call up your uh, local uh, you know uh, farmers agent and they go yeah sure let's go. There are specific carriers that do this type of insurance, so you have to contact an independent agent. Um, you know, those of us that specialize in this obviously know the markets to go to and write this stuff. But yeah, you have to go to a specific uh, program that will do builder's risk for these types of homes uh, because it's not necessarily ground up construction. It's a little unique. You know, you're, you're, you're bringing in a prefab in most circumstances, right? We're dealing with uh, homes that are manufactured in a certain site and then they're being brought to another site where they're, they're being set up. Yeah, or that which is which you, you've talked about and alluded to, you know, which is Title 25 manufactured homes. You know, this is this kind of thing is going to cover whether you're doing that or you're doing a Title 24 UBC compliant stick built or you're doing an off the shelf design build or you're doing a kit. You know, it just kind of depends on the codes to kind of talk about, but there's going to be construction on your property. And that's how you want to protect yourself. That's great. Yes. And then another point that I was thinking as you guys were going through is in, it depends on the circumstance. So this is why you always just want to talk to an agent is it depends upon the circumstance that you're doing. If you're building this on a, a piece of property that you already own where you have a home already, 
there's already liability insurance through your homeowner's policy. You could talk to your homeowner's carrier, let them know, okay, we're planning on doing this because technically they're picking up that exposure because homeowner's policies are based on your premises or premise address. And so if you are putting like a, a secondary structure on your actual home site, you need to let your homeowner's carrier know that you're doing this so that they understand that the liability is going to be extended. They, I can't tell you how they're going to respond, uh, but uh, you know, you do, you are afforded some workers comp coverage under your homeowner's policy and you're afforded some uh, extent, extended liability. But when you are, are doing a big project like this, they're going to want you to have a GC on there that is licensed and insured. Well, while you're going down that track, once it, once you're finished and you start getting, maybe you get a tenant in and it's not your, your, uh, your, your family. Uh, what do you do then? What, what renters, comes? renters insurance, they have to buy a renter's liability policy. You'll still be responsible for insuring the, the dwelling for burning down, et cetera. Um, but you do want to make sure that you get a, that your tenants come in and buy what's called a renter's policy, that they're providing some uh, liability for themselves. And if any guests they bring over, that they have some primary liability there to protect you. Uh, not only that, but when you buy a renter or when you man, uh, mandate your tenants to have a renter's policy, you get what's called a uh, fire legal liability. And in the event that the renter is responsible for burning your place down, uh, you have some liability on their policy to pay the claims as opposed to your carrier paying the claim. Assuming that they're responsible for the fire, which in most cases they are. <laughs> Leaving something on the stove or smoking in bed or something along those lines. Yeah, anything like that. Um, <laughs> we're at, uh, we got about 20 minutes left. And one of the topics that I think that I really want, to, uh, I'm excited about Ryan answering is that we get a lot is how do you find, a, is finding a good contractor? How do you find uh -oh. people to work with? How do you even begin the process of deciding what to do? If you want an accessory dwelling unit, I get this asked all the time. And then in, in the group, I, I've seen so many sort of tangents of things going off in a million different directions. I want to give you some time to kind of talk about what your experience is with that question. This is a hard one, guys. I think, you know, everything depends on your project, right? You're the most important character in your story. So, uh, some people will have a lot of success with one of the most traditional paths, which is you find, uh, you find an architect who is a customer service representative during the whole process, or you find a GC who likes doing customer service, right? Every GC is kind of a, their own business too. Some of them love it, some of them don't. And they should, they should know that about themselves uh, by the time you meet them. And, and that person will hopefully be a really strong point person throughout the process. What I see a lot in the group and so if i stray from that happy path you know if you want to save money and and everybody does then you start getting multiple bids from lots of different types of people who do lots of different parts of this whole big a to z process and i i think you can build a team to accomplish your goals if you a have a really good sense of how to do this from a to z you can build a less conventional team. So if you've built a house before, there's a much better chance that you know how to get from A to Z with like a, like a sandlot hodgepodge team of like mis misfits. If you do not know how to build a house, get it permitted, get it financed and go from A to Z and like know how to overcome all of the stuff that happens on HGTV, but like for real, then don't, don't, don't build the misfit team, <laughs> like go out, and, and, and consider consider that it is worth spending the money on the like the traditional team on on the on the guys who know what they're doing who do these projects a lot and to find them if you don't know how to identify them by the price tag you, you, you also can ask questions how many adus have you built um building adus i think is a little bit different than building houses and i and my proof of that is how many people call me every day and say I, got the, I thought he was a builder. He built so many houses or this architect is like the most experienced architect in my region. They don't know the first thing about this permitting process. I mean, well, ADUs use a different set of laws and you got a really experienced person, but they don't know about ADUs or like your builder built, has built a bunch of mansions 
but they're not used to the Title 24 requirements on an 800 square foot unit with tons of windows, which is totally different, oh, right? Yeah. And they're doing insane things because the regulation requires us to overbuild them a little bit. And your builder just didn't know that when he did the project or she did the project. And so they, they, they were going off on a completely different tangent. So get, I suggest going with the traditional team if you don't know how to do this already. I, I suggest asking specifically whether they built ADUs or not and like get, get some customer references. Then it's just like interviewing for a job. And then lastly, I think to some extent, even when you work with the A-teams, you gotta, you gotta build, you gotta just use common sense to make sure everybody's well-managed and incentivized to be successful. So like um, somebody called me the other day said that they had a two-year-old uh, bid from a contractor and they wanted to know how they could force the contractor to honor that quote. And I was like, well, hold on, let's, let's say that you have that agreement, right? And that you find some legal way to force the contractor to honor that quote, don't. Like yeah. prices have changed, that builder will hate you. They will be losing money every time they appear on the project and they will be incentivized to do a terrible job for you. Now, go back to them and have an honest conversation about ways to, to like, hey, you were so good before, can we keep the co competitive? and like have an adult conversation and maybe you'll still get a good rate because you're being a human, but like, don't, don't, ex don't try to force people into giving you the best price, best price possible because there's strings attached every time. Right. Um, what's another good example. If you get, if you get an owner builder, which I often recommend, um, you know, on these small ADU projects, a lot of the time owner builder makes more sense than full fledged architect and then GC and then especially on conversions. Um, but, but you want to think about like when that owner builder, sorry, I'm saying owner builder, I mean design builder, my bad. Yeah. When you get that design builder in there, when they're doing the design part, you want them to be thinking hard about the design to make the build as cost effective as possible. Now, if they're making, if they're giving you the design for free and they're making all their margin on the build, they're not incentivized to do a really thoughtful job on the design. And it's not their fault, right? You, you, you structured the deal so that they only care about the build. If, if you split it up and say, yeah, I, I love design build, but can you do the design and then bid on your own design? Th then that's a very different proposition. Now they're gonna have to put some effort into the design being the most cost effective, and then also put some effort in on the bidding process. Not everybody wants to do that, but it's a good example of like, if you set up the incentives right, it can work. And everybody who's competent can do a good job. If you set up the incentives wrong, you're kind of telling them like, hey, I'll pay you more if you do a bad job on the, on the design part. And that's, that's a weird situation to put yourself in, right? So uh, if all of that sounds really easy, like the, the three things I just said, then like maybe you could be an owner builder. Uh, I would suggest going and taking some online courses that cost a few hundred bucks. Cole Peterson's got one and he's like the granddaddy ADUs. I'll drop a link in the chat to the affiliate link. Um, but like it's, if, if you can invest, if you think it sounds easy and you don't mind investing a bunch of time and a little bit of money then that's a good sign because, because you're supposed to not mind investing a little to save a bunch. But if any of that sounds tricky, don't do it. Get the A team, get the traditional team. That's my thing. I want to ask more about a third grade kind of question <laughs> because some of us, or maybe some people here maybe who might be watching this may not understand the difference between an architect and a designer. And could you talk about that, Ryan? Oof. Uh, well, architects are licensed. And so the same way that we talked about the NMLS thing, like architects have a legal responsibility to oversee the whole project, stamp it, and then they're like liable for a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, and that's my baby explanation. Um, design and, you know, a good example is even at an architect firm, there are designers, right? And, and everybody's working into the architect who's stamping the whole plan set. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to sound mean. Every, uh, everybody can be a designer, right? You can, you can yes. say designer pretty everybody quickly. Everybody can get some software. That's it. And so, uh, and, and, you know, you draw to scale, maybe you don't even draw to scale. You can still tell people you're a designer. So, so just, you know, be careful. That said, like I said, design build makes a ton of sense for these smaller projects. Um, you don't legally need an architect on, uh, timber construction, like type five or whatever it's called under three floors. Like, so there's, you know, you're, you're allowed to do it. You're even allowed to do your drawings on your own. You know, if, if you've got a city who's willing to walk you through the ABCs, 
but like just because you can just because you're allowed <laughs> doesn't mean it's the best way to get to, to the finish line if that makes sense oh i want to get back on that can i piggyback on that david please okay so um just seeing this from a lending perspective because i have to see the full set of plans and i have to see the full construction breakdown mm -hmm. and when the architect or designer and the builder are not on the same page you're going to get halfway through construction and you're going to have upsells on the build side because the architectural plan wasn't done right so when you're building an adu the specs that an adu has to be built in the state of california and it's different by county there's overlaying rules but then you've got different easements and different restrictions and different height management that you have to build to um make darn sure that if you're not working with an architect design build firm and your architect is separate from your builder that they are absolutely communicating because if your architect over designs your adu and your builder tries to build it with that you've just blown your budget mm -hmm. so though you've got to keep everybody in line and if you don't want to keep everyone in line then you need to hook the two parties up at the beginning and have the conversation with both and give them your budget because if an architect has free reign, they're going to design you the world. And then you're going to have to go, oh, no, I, I don't want the world. I just want Pluto. So can you please bring it down a little? And this will save you not only time, but it's going to save you a ton of money if you do this up front, because your architect isn't going to go through a full set of plans or your designer and your builder's not having to rewrite a bunch of stuff. You're helping all parties involved get you to the finish line that much faster. Mm -hmm. and, and even there's even more reasonable examples, right? Like you, you go uh, architecture designer says, hey, this these are the windows I picked for the, the plan, right? Makes a totally reasonable choice for budget. But then the builder you pick works with a different supplier who gets who has different manufacturer relationships and doesn't have good pricing or timelines on those windows like you need to go back and forth and iterate, so especially right now with all the supply chain stuff. You don't want a window that delays the project by 12 weeks. You don't want a window that expands, a glass door that expands your budget by $20,000 because of what's happening right now in the market. You want a builder and an, and an architect or designer who have their stuff enough together that they can iterate and be like, hey, this thing happened at the job and we're gonna adapt based on your inputs, right? And, and hopefully, Hopefully they do that well. And Cole's awesome. I have to plug him because I worked with him for so many years and he's awesome. If you want to do an owner build, buy his book and take his course because it's game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, let's see. Patrick, you had a question. I believe they're in the middle of the road approach where you are an owner builder, but hire a PM project manager or someone with construction experience to orchestrate the subs thoughts or experience on that approach it's a good like keystone for for every part of this conversation right because like it's really it's really tricky who's who's got the insurance in that in that uh, <laughs> pm over subs in an owner builder permit right like if you're subbing out even if you only get licensed subcontractors but now you've got a pm who let's say that that pm he or she makes a mistake because stuff happens right on these jobs Something's gonna happen. Who who's who's responsible in that in that setup? And how do you how do you adjudicate it? Like it's it's a weird idiosyncratic industry with lots of different players and lots of different responsibilities. And every year somebody comes out and says they're gonna revolutionize the whole thing. They're gonna be A to Z and they're gonna they're gonna change the way it works. And I God bless them. I I wish they could, but like be careful when you're when you're doing this build your own team like it's an exact example of what i'm talking about with the, with the team of misfits and I, I love i love major league i love sandlot but be careful man <laughs> no, I, and that was a good good question patrick um, i know we have just a couple more minutes because we're just going to uh, shut this thing down at three o'clock and i want to be respectful of everybody's time and one of the things that i i feel personally that is not really covered that much is going to be the difference in types of construction whether you're doing a stick built Title 24 UBC compliant. Title 24 is the energy code for the state of California. We've talked about that a little bit because, you know, sometimes smaller units with lots of pretty windows and you run the Title 24 calculations, well, they may need to have an insulation in the ceiling that's an R58. It, it may be a foot deep of insulation to kind of compensate for the sun that's going to be coming in through those windows. That's the Title 24. 
and using the, uni the uniform building code with the various jurisdictions, those all kind of go together with that design and build package for a traditionally built ADU. Then there's the other type that is getting a huge amount of time and energy and money spent advertising and soliciting people, and that's the Title 25 manufactured home. There's a couple big companies that are out there saying that they have their ADUs, they're gonna give them to you, but they do not properly, in my opinion, disclose the fact that it is a Title 25 built manufactured home. It's built to great, the codes are great. You know, it's a HUD code, it's HCD administered locally, on the state level, I shouldn't say local, state level. But you should know what you're getting because as we've been talking about all the little different components, whether it's the improper insurance, saying what you're gonna be doing, when you're gonna be doing it, what type of loan product you're doing, and whether you're going to be getting, you know, you're using the A-Team or the Sandlot. The Title 25 manufactured homes have other critical components like a 433A. <laughs> and for those who don't know, 433As are permanent foundation systems that will record the manufactured home to the land. So now it becomes one with your property. And I, and I again, have not seen those things kind of come up. But as somebody who's been in the industry for so long, I'm just like, all these little red flags are kind of coming up with. But those, two, and those, but they're very good, solid products, and I endorse both of them. The part, the one that I am really concerned about, and I would love to get the, you know, Brian's opinion on this, are those companies that are also spending a lot of money and are advertising these things that'll come to your property, and you can just plug them in, and you don't need a permit to have them put on there. And they're, and if you drill down just a little bit below the surface, you find out that they're being built to the RV codes and so I'm like oh my goodness and people on the group are saying oh I got one it's not built to the RV code oh yeah I guess it is I'm like so those are things that I, I'm worried about that people are not the, the the vendor the seller the provider is definitely not making it because they making it known and the people that are saying you can do it for $50,000 you can get an ADU starting at $50,000 you're going to have to move it off your property if you want to sell it because you can't sell it. It's not a permittable <laughs> thing. It's like a tiny home. You cannot sell that ADU and that property. You're going to have to get it off before you try to sell your property. Thank you, Hillary. I literally just had someone have to do that in San Diego. They got a RV spec. It was $49,000 and they went to go sell it. And the county said, uh-uh, it's not permitted dwelling and it's a car. Get it off the site. You cannot sell this property until you do. Um, so that is something to consider. It changes the resale value of your of your property. Yeah, that's the classic. Is it an appreciating asset like a house or is it a thing that just lost half its value when it showed up? Um, <laughs> guys, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm, sometimes I sound like I'm making fun of folks. And here's the thing. You got to know what, again, you're the main character of your story. If what you need is a caretaker trailer and motorized trailer makes the most sense for you, then like, obviously do that. Like it's much cheaper and maybe that's what you need in life. Like, and we all have a lot of needs right now that we're discovering. If what you're trying to do is build an investment on your property that's gonna like be there for decades, lodge a family member, create some security for yourself, be an appreciating asset. There's a very specific path to getting that. <laughs> and, and anybody who's selling you something that sounds too good to be true, spend serious time interrogating it it's pretty, it's, um, it is free to go into the group and go, hey, what do people think about this? And, and kind of put the cheerleaders aside. Like it's, gr it's great that there are fans of different products, but then like look at the criticisms and go, is this a real criticism? Is it valid? Let me go, let me go ask the manufacturer for like to disprove this and then and just interrogate it. It's worth the savings if, you're, if it's true. And if it's not true, it's worth doing the research. Yeah, so thank you for my uh, answering those. Hillary, I did not know that you had to move it off the property. Yeah, it's like a, a true, man, think about it this way. A manufactured home is considered a vehicle in the eyes of the lending world. It is a detitled asset. So when you put a manufactured home on a site- RV or a manufactured home? Both. Yeah. When you put a manufactured home on site, you have to detitle it. So there's an actual title Correct. change that With goes With the 433A. Yes, sir. And because of that, the lending laws around it are different. Now you can have a manufactured home, no problem, resell it, you're totally fine. 
But if you do something like a what's considered an RV and you put it on the site of the property and a mortgage lender comes in to help somebody buy that property up, the mortgage lender is going to say, I can't finance that RV. I can't finance. It's not a financeable asset. You got to get it off the site. Not that it's not a great thing for people. Like you said, Ryan, it might be an awesome solution for 10 years for somebody. Great. Simply be prepared that if you go to sell that site, whatever that is, the county's going to say, mm -mm, and the lender's going to say, nope. And everyone's going to have to get up in arms and, and move that off the site in order for the property to be saleable. Yeah, thank you for that, Hilly. I think the one thing, too, as we kind of wrap up, as I've seen um, recently on Twitter, is that some housing housing affordable affordability advocates are mentioning that certain cities like LA and I, some other Northern California city are allowing RVs to be placed or mm -hmm. for, for housing. And I under, and I, I get that they're inexpensive, but they're not a long-term solution. And I think that there are ways to be able to provide long-term permanent structures. And I just wish that the state and our elected officials would look at that as opposed to temporary fixes. Um, Clint, Hillary, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. I, this has been this has been so much better than I would have been, uh, hoped for. For everybody that's still here with us, thank you for participating in the chat. We were going to send you a survey out that says if there's anything else that you'd like us to cover, if you'd like to do it again, or just any sort of feedback that would help us out, we'd appreciate it. Also, too, I know that we'll be putting it on our, we'll be reposting this, and I know I'm pretty confident Ryan might may consider doing that as well, too. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.